Welcome to the National Academy of Medicine Scholars in Diagnostic Excellence Expert Introduction Podcast. Today, we are talking about equity. My name is Elena James, and I'll be your host for this session. I am a medical dermatologist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and School of Medicine. I am the founding director of Skin Health Equity, which addresses inequities in the field of dermatology, including access to care, workforce diversity, visual learning equity, and clinical research with marginalized communities. I'm super excited to introduce today's guest speaker, Dr. Saeed Ibrahim. Dr. Ibrahim is the Senior Vice President of Medicine at Northwell Health and the Chairperson of Internal Medicine at Long Island Jewish Medical Center and North Shore University Hospital. Dr. Ibrahim is also a full professor at Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. As a clinician investigator, Dr. Ibrahim's research focuses on health equity and disparities. Dr. Ibrahim, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to talk with you about equity in healthcare, including diagnosis and research. Thank you, Dr. Dr. James, and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to uh, be part of the program. Wonderful. To start, Dr. Ibrahim, will you please share with us a summary of your career journey? How did you get to the point that you are today? Well, thank you. That's a great question. <laughs> I often wonder myself. Um, but uh, let me start from the beginning. I, I'm originally, as you could tell from my accent, I'm originally from East Africa. I was born in a small town right on the border between Ethiopia and Somalia. I grew up, you know, in East Africa, which, as you probably know, is one of the uh, least developed parts of the world, uh, where I was, you know, exposed to all kinds of uh, medical conditions, which really was how I became interested in becoming a doctor to begin with. But I didn't have the opportunity to go to medical school until I came to the United States in the in the 80s. I, I came to the U.S. in the 1980s. I went to college at Oberlin College, uh, which is a small liberal arts school in Ohio. After a couple of years of, of doing basic science research, you know, was a, was a lab tech, at the Worcester Institute in Philadelphia, I, I eventually went to medical school at Case Western School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. And after that, I, I uh, became a resident at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And then later after that, I received some of my health services research training at Harvard School of Public Health. And since then, I've been basically a faculty member first at, uh, in Cleveland at Case Western School of Medicine and later in Pittsburgh, where you are, Dr. James, I was in Pittsburgh for 10 years as a faculty member. Um, and then at, at Penn, uh, where I was eight years, a, a, a professor at Perelman School of Medicine at Penn. And, and then I spent about four years at Cornell in, in the Upper East Side uh, before I was recruited to join uh, Northwell about a year or so ago. 
So that's really sort of in a in a, in a short version, <laughs> you know, my short life and how I arrived uh, at where I am professionally. But let me just also take a step back and tell you a little more about my research and a sort of an academic sort of uh, career. I was always interested in social determinants of health. After all, that's really how I became interested in medicine. And and when I you know finished my training um, uh, in Boston. Uh, it became very clear to me that that what I really wanted to study was, was healthcare disparities um, in in general and health equity, and that's how I started. I you know, I, I uh, remember talking to some of my mentors for a project, and one of the young uh, rheumatologists who I met uh, said to me, "Well, Saeed, there is a really large disparity that nobody is interested in." Would you be interested in studying? And I said, what's that? And he said, it's in the use of knee and hip replacement. Minority patients are about 40% less likely to undergo knee and hip replacement. And I said, why is that? And his response was, well, nobody knows. And I said, well, that's an interesting question to to look. So so I actually wrote my first uh, career development award on that topic. And I've been funded continuously for 25 years on that subject by the NIH. Wow, that is amazing how that opportunity presented itself and you were ready and receptive to start engaging with that information. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So thank you for telling us about sort of um, that journey. And so now that you... You know, at that period of time, you were concentrating on the social determinants of of health. How did that sort of shape and frame the next steps that came? And how did you really start to shape and mold your career around this theme? Beautiful, beautiful question. And I think this is actually something that I often uh, share with, with the young faculty who come to me sort of, you know, to ask me, how do you, where do you start? <laughs> so, and how do you sort of, uh, sort of uh, build a career on, on this subject? So, it was, so what is I found the mentor? And once I found the question that I wanted to study, then it really became more about um, um, strategizing for, for, for research career, because, you know, the most important thing in a research career, if you want to be a physician scientist is, is to really find a way to get a career development award that allows you to have the time to to focus on research. Um, And that was the first proposal that I wrote, was was really a sort of a a K application. Instead of going to the NIH, I actually went to the VA, because I, I don't know if you know that the VA has one of the best health services research career development awards in the country. And, and so that's what I did. I wrote that on the subject, why is it that African-American patients particularly are significantly less likely to undergo a treatment for, for which the indication is actually not that different? Because the prevalence of knee or hip osteoarthritis is actually equally prevalent regardless of demographics, but yet the treatment uh, you know, even though it's an elective treatment, is markedly variable depending on on who you are. And so, so that was that was the first sort of uh, career development uh, application that I wrote, and it got funded on the first go because no one else was studying the subject. <laughs> so what I told people is that first of all, you have to pick something that that's meaningful to you, uh, and secondly, uh, it's always good to actually study something that's not being overstudied. Find a sort of a space that makes sense to you. 
And and that's it. Really, actually, how I started. And I've been sort of very lucky to did a, a, a series of studies. Uh, first, I started with you know doing a large database analysis projects that that actually confirmed the disparity is real. Then after that. I did what the, what we call second generation health disparities research, where the goal is to identify the reasons for the confirmed disparity. And then I did what they call the third generation research. Once you have found some of the reasons why these disparities exist, you could design interventions that address them. And actually, right now, I'm on the fourth generation health disparities research, where I'm trying to implement some of the uh, potential interventions that we found to be uh, to be potentially useful. That's great um, to see sort of that pathway and the steps that you were taking that are classic research and looking at health disparities and inequities that oftentimes it's hard to quantify and to explain and secondarily hard to correct. So um, with that, you know, my question is, have you seen the needle move? Have you seen in improvements? Because in this work of proving one that a difference exists and then proving that it's based on the social determinants of health, have you seen changes? So that's a really, really beautiful question, Dr. James. And it's one of the most frustrating part about uh, academic medicine and, and research in general, because uh, as many of many people know that sometimes when, even when we have a solid scientific evidence for something, getting it from the, the sort of the academic world into the real world is a really, really big struggle. And that's actually part of what I meant when I said we are working on implementation studies, because that, that's really the goal. There are other ways that you could really sort of shape uh, the health equity struggle that I've been able to do. So let me give you some examples of those. Well, first of all, once I have established myself as a as a, as a you know an investigator in the area, which meant I had to have you know the grants and the tenure and all those things, then my goal was to sort of say, what is it that I need to do about health equity that leverages my own sort of uh, successes? And the first thing I did was to mentor young people who are interested in health and in, in health equity research. So I started this actually in Pittsburgh. And, and I continued doing that in, in Philadelphia at Penn, where I have identified young people who are interested in health disparities research and helped them create their careers. And some of them have actually become uh, national leaders in health disparities research as a result of that. So that was really one phase where I felt that I was leveraging my own career in health equity uh, even though we may not be solving the health equity problem, but we are creating more interest and more research and more voices uh, that expose health disparities. The second thing I did uh, was once I sort of had the opportunity to also address the other side of the elephant uh, being the health equity, which is diversity, uh, I became actually the, the first senior associate dean for diversity and inclusion at Cornell Medical School. And my, my goal has shifted slightly. Rather than mentoring young people to just do health equity research, which I was doing already, I now became interested in pushing the institutions to diversify its faculty so that we create a community of providers and scientists that reflect the communities that we serve. 
So I became interested in building diversity and inclusion sort of programs and fundraising for specific programs that allow uh, young people to be recruited into these competitive institutions. And I'm happy to tell you more about how I did that and what we have accomplished uh, in that particular role. But those were two ways that I leveraged my own career and, and training to sort of really sort of advance health equity. But to answer your really beautiful question, which is have we impact the care of patients? That's really a sort of the jury is still out. Yes, it's true that we've been studying healthcare disparities from diabetes to depression to cardiovascular disease to orthopedic care for the last 30 years. And some of these disparities still exist. And in fact, what's, what's sad is that we are creating new disparities as we speak. You know, I was involved in the struggle to not, you know, to, to, uh, to expose the disparities in the COVID management and realities. And, and you know, it's not like that we didn't know what was happening to the country when the COVID disparities and inequities became very, very evident. I think as we solve some disparities, we actually create new ones because there are new treatments, there are new diagnostic sort of tools that come on board, and we don't often sort of uh, take into account how to distribute them equitably. That's amazing information that you're sharing uh, with us. And I'm going to ask you to really drill down, especially on the topics of mentorship and, and, and workforce diversity and help us connect the dots, which aren't always obvious between diversity and equity. And we use the term a lot, DEI work, and, and we have a lot of people in positions of leadership, but please explain to us how this is so important and how diversity and equity link together and to, to help solve these health inequities. It's a beautiful question. Uh, so one of the things that I learned in the work that I was doing, trying to understand racial disparity in the use of the elective knee and hip replacement is that the, one of the most important factors that shapes the utilization of that treatment is doctor-patient communication. But orthopedic sort of providers uh, or workforce is the least diverse of all the specialties. In fact, when I was doing the studies, 96% of orthopedic surgeons in the country were, were white men. Uh, so it was not diverse by gender or by any other sort of means. And so, so one would sort of say, so what does that have to do with anything? Well, the interesting thing is that when, when you're talking about a discretionary treatment, you know, elective treatment, where preference is an issue, where patients' cultural background is brought into the conversation, if you have a disconnect between the provider and the patient socially or culturally, it becomes a problem. And we actually have shown that how doctors and patients communicate about knee pain and the management of knee pain was the single most important factor in shaping this disparity. So that actually what the lessons I've learned from that sort of conversation is that one of the ways we could address disparities is to diversify the workforce. So if we could make orthopedic surgery reflect the country, then I think we may actually, it may not solve all the problems, but at least it will get us to the right direction. So when I became the Senior Associate Dean for Diversity at Cornell, one of the things that I have noticed is that at the medical school, where we have the diversity and inclusion, the DEI kind of movement, 
Um, the, it was all about diversity of the medical school and the workforce. But then at the clinical arena, we have the equity problem. And the two groups never actually talk to each other. Because, because I, I know that because I was a health disparities researcher in the clinical space. The scientific meetings I go to are, are not where you will find the DEI sort of leaders of medical schools. So I actually I, I actually wrote a piece about this um, uh, not long ago, sort of saying it's time that we bring those two forces together as, as a joint strategy to actually address the inequity. Because ultimately, I, I believe that diversity is the means by which we provide health equity. So if so, therefore, you know, we have to be speaking together and we have to be addressing all the issues together at the same time. Wonderful. And so with your work and you've been at many institutions and you've seen healthcare, um, you know, delivered in different forms, different cities. Right now in New York, you're at one of the largest healthcare uh, institutions. So on a structural level, what does this look like? How do we see structural change as far as DEI is concerned? No, I think that's actually, in my opinion, the frontier of this struggle. This is exactly where we are now, because large healthcare systems are still organized in ways that doesn't really sort of necessarily support the implementation of equitable care. So I think one of the one of the things that I have witnessed in my short career is that when I started sort of this you know research and and when I became a provider or a healthcare provider in the uh, early 90s, the academic or the healthcare systems were actually isolated from the communities that they served. People just came to us and we took care of their illness and we sent them out and we had absolutely no interest in where they went or where they came from. I think something has changed about that. I th finally, we are, we are realizing a person's health is really shaped uh, not only by disease, but their social background. And we, we need to really think about interventions that address the communities that we serve. And that's where the struggle is at the moment. So how do we sort of extend healthcare beyond the walls of the hospital? And, and in my opinion, that's really what would allow us to actually get out of the healthcare sort of uh, walls, healthcare systems, and get into the community and provide care that's continuous uh, with community care. And the studies that I'm actually interested in right now are studies that actually look at that. So instead of looking at who gets knee or hip replacement, one of the studies that I am now uh, proposing is to look at what happens after people get the knee or hip replacement, where do they go? How, what's the risk of uh, being readmitted? What's their long-term complication rates? You know, how do they fit into the community? What's their ability to sort of go back to the activities that they were used to? Um, so, so I think that's really the place where healthcare systems need to have an impact. We need to find a way to define our community the greater community rather than just who comes to our hospital. Yes, I agree. I think that there is something important about walking alongside people with their healthcare system, not just at points of care, but a continuous relationship uh, with them. And it for it to be community-based, I agree wholeheartedly. Thank you for that. 
So one of the other questions or thoughts that I have about DEI, and I'm very excited about where we are, especially coming off of, you know, the COVID pandemic and the health inequities there, and then the health and societal justice efforts in 2020 with the brutal killings of so many people, people of color. Yeah. Um, and so now we're in a momentum and, and we can see ourselves moving forward, but I do have concerns that there is, you know, a period of time when this will stop or it will halt or even concerns that there may be a backlash against it. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that we can continue to move forward with this momentum um, as we are? You know, that's really another great question, uh, Dr. James. Uh, you know, this is this was one of the things that I'm always concerned about. Yes, it's true that the social injustice sort of crisis of 2020, along with the COVID crisis, has created a momentum to really shine the light on what we have always known which is the marked social injustices and, and the health inequities. So it's not like we found something that didn't exist. It's just that it became more obvious to a lot of people and it created some momentum, uh, you know, to sort of galvanize people to do something about it. But these things are ephemeral. They don't last forever. And, and, and actually there is some backlash actually on a global scale and some of these, on some of these sort of uh, uh, realities. But I, I'm optimistic by nature, and I believe that that it's it's possible to take small incremental steps, and I think that's where that's what we have to do. But there's another thing though that I have learned. When I actually one of the things that I'm proud of in my uh, short tenure at, at Cornell was that I proposed to the to the dean and to the board of trustees of Cornell Medical Center that we needed to create a subcommittee of the Board of Trustees on Equity and Diversity and Inclusion. And initially they actually sort of thought that that was not necessary. And my rationale was exactly what you said, Dr. James, which is some deans are committed to diversity, some are not. And the deans come and go. Uh, the average life expectancy of, of a dean is about five years. So how does, how does an institution maintain its sort of continuity in some of these sort of commitments? And one of the things that I've learned is that one of the ways you could do that is by making sure that the board of trustees are involved in the policies because then they can hold the deans accountable. So actually, initially, you know, my dean was not that crazy about the idea, but when the crisis happened in 2020, it created a momentum that allowed me to do that. And that board, subcommittee of the board at Cornell still exists and it's shaping actually the selection of the new dean. So that's one of the ways, in my opinion, um, you know, I'm, I'm just answering your question with, with an example uh, of institutionalizing the commitment rather than making it really sort of um, up to the, the, the current uh, today's leader or, or today's sort of a passionate person. Because people do come and go. That's great. And that leadership role in a permanent, sustainable form exactly. that these themes and these policies and these issues are constantly evaluated and that there is an accountability tied towards that. That's that's wonderful. 
going from the structural institutional level back to the individual level. So, you know, health inequities work, health disparities work. It has a different feel to it than just basic science work. There are a lot of feelings and emotions that may be tied towards racialized care, gender care, you know, different groups of people. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that component of the work you do? Well, absolutely. I mean, I actually, I remember when I was training uh, the Harvard School of Public Health, I, I remember meeting a mentor and telling him that I'm interested in disparities in a specific area of research. And his response was, what, do you want to be a politician or a scientist? <laughs> so, um, so yes, I think that's an example of some of the sort of uh, institutional resistance to the whole concept of equity. But I, I think, you know, if, if you believe in what you're doing, and, and you sort of use the scientifically robust ways of going about what you need to go about, people will be willing to ultimately listen to you. You know, I wouldn't be able to tell you how many papers I have written have been rejected because they were about equity, uh, because I, I don't really pay attention to. But, but, but you know, but I am someone who's persistent. And, and if I, you know, I think, I think we have to, this is an important issue. It's important to the country. It's important to a lot of people. There is always going to be resistance, always whether it's based on science or whether they they sort of it's cloaked as a scientific kind of issue or not, there will always be a resistance. And more importantly, you, you will be surprised the number of scientific meetings that I have attended where I'm the only person of color. At some point, it also becomes kind of a little bit um, frustrating that you feel like you are always sort of fighting against the current. But I, I, I believe that, that uh, those of us who have the opportunity to do this have to persist and has, have to sort of uh, uh, keep it going. I think there's sufficient number of people who, who are morally and ethically uh, sort of clear in their heads that this is important, uh, that collectively, I think this is something that we could, uh, we could keep pushing in spite of the resistance and the backlash. Thank you. Thank you. Perseverance is key. Absolutely. I agree. So as uh, NAM scholars in diagnostic excellence, you know, you use the word ethical and moral. And a lot of times when we think about research and just research in general, not research that is necessarily focused on health inequities or health disparities, how can we conduct our research in not only an ethical way, but an equitable way. Exactly. How can we do that on the individual level to make sure that equity is a part of our research and we're taking into consideration all of these different factors? No, absolutely. I think this is really important. In fact, one of the one of the most really sort of unfortunate realities that I have sort of seen is that participation in research is not equitable. Um, and that really has uh, implications for for what we do. Just to give you an example about the diagnostic side of that inequality in participating in research and how it impacts um, um, uh, healthcare. Um, I about a year or two, maybe two years ago, I was asked to write an editorial about a new study using artificial intelligence to reconfigure uh, sort of. Uh, um, 
um, a diagnostic tool that we have used for decades uh, for osteoarthritis, for instance. But the tool that it's called Cal uh, Calgary and Lawrence scale, which is which is which is a way we sort of grade um, uh, the severity of, of of knee or hip osteoarthritis. This tool was developed about 30 or 40 years ago in a small northern England town. And it became very internationalized. This, these new uh, sort of investigators figured out that one of the ways that you could make this tool more equitable and more sort of scientifically sound was to actually redevelop it in a different population that's more diverse. And when they did that, it actually eliminated black-white disparities in pain expression. So it is an example of how diagnostic work, uh, if it's not representative of the population in its development, could actually mislead us uh, and lead us to deliver an unequal care. So that's one of the things that I tell people is that we need clinical trials and all therapeutic and diagnostic developments to be representative to begin with of the population is that we will serve. And, and we have to really actually encourage our patients and our relatives and our friends and our community to really uh, sort of be part of the scientific uh, enterprise so that the product that comes out, the evidence that we create becomes something that's relevant to all the communities rather than just being imposed. Wonderful. And in wrapping up our session, what closing words, uh, words of encouragement do you have for us about equity, health inequities, looking at disparities? What would you like to leave us with? Well, I, I just, first of all, I want to congratulate you and others who are, who are part of this team for your interest in health equity. I, I think the biggest mistake we would make is if we have, if we fail to inspire young people uh, to want to become health uh, equity researchers or champions. You don't have to be a researcher, but also you could be a champion uh, for the patients or for the community or for the health system. Or you know. So so that's really the most important really thing. So I, I tell people to uh, be optimistic, um, to, to um, um, aspire to make humanity better. And one of the ways we could make humanity better is to make it more equitable across the board. And I think we have to inspire the next generation of physicians and scientists who will continue this work uh, long after we are gone. And I think that's that's my message too. Let's let's keep it going. Definitely. Thank you, Dr. Ibrahim, for sharing with us your career pathway, for inspiring us uh, to mentor, to be involved with the workforce diversity, looking at equity within our research. Um, and to, you know, be positive about the work, um, any resistance that we may encounter, and just to keep going. So, so we'll end with that. Thank you again for joining us and thank you for your time. Thank you, Dr. James, and thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank you.